Our sermon series through the Gospel of John uh, brings us this morning to the story of the woman caught in adultery. No single story, no single chapter, no single book in the Bible can contain the whole wonder of God, but the story of the woman caught in adultery gets at the heart of the gospel in a special way, gets at the heart of why Jesus is good news. And so I'm delighted this morning to share that story with you, and I pray that God will speak to us through his word this morning as clearly as he spoke through the mouth of Jesus to this unnamed woman years ago. This morning I'm going to read from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Hear the word of God. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. I've titled this sermon, Catch and Release, not because I've ever gone fishing, but because the woman in this story is caught by the law and released by grace. She's caught by the scribes and Pharisees who want to see her punished, and she's released by Jesus who wants to see her live a holy life. This morning, I want us to wrap our minds around the central mystery of our faith. A mystery that consists of two seemingly contrary truths that when held together form the strange good news of Jesus Christ. I want us to recognize that if we let go either one of these truths that combine to form one mystery, if we let go of either one of them, we lose the good news and can only fall into hopeless despair. But before I get there, I have to clean up two pesky side issues that might cloud our vision on this text. And once we've dispensed with those side issues, we'll get down to business and talk about the twofold mystery of the gospel. So hold on for a minute. Jesus is in the temple teaching and some Scribes and Pharisees bring a woman to him who's been caught in adultery. They present this woman to Jesus and ask him to be the judge. The law of Moses is very clear in this case. 
If you commit adultery, whether you're a man or a woman, you get stoned to death. So the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus and they ask him, what do you say, Jesus? What should we do with her? And Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt, acting as though he's uninterested in the whole proceeding. And while he's writing in the dirt, the crowd of accusers disperses, slowly wanders away one by one, beginning with the old men first, and then leaving in the end just this woman and Jesus. Finally, Jesus looks up from his writing and asks the woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This woman has been caught by the law, but she's been released by grace. She's been caught in sin, but released to live a holy life. That's the story. But now, let me talk about the two side issues. Side issue number one, the wandering text. If you have your pew Bibles in front of you this morning, or if you have your own home Bible with you, you may have noticed that our reading this morning is set in special brackets. And it has a note above it, which reads... The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. You and I are accustomed to reading the Gospel of John in nicely printed books that have press runs of tens of thousands of copies. Our Pew Bible, the English Standard Version, was first published in 1971. Three years ago, this translation surpassed the 90 million copies mark, but for 1,400 years, the Gospel of John was copied by hand, one at a time. If you wanted to own your own copy of the Gospel of John, if you were rich enough, you might borrow a copy from a friend, take it to a scribe, who would then copy it out by hand using pen and ink, writing the words on papyrus or specially prepared animal skins. Depending on how fancy you wanted your copy, you would get back your edition of the Gospel of John in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Now, how could you be sure that your copy of the Gospel of John was exactly the same as the copy that you had borrowed from your friend? Well, you'd have to read them side by side and compare. And that's exactly what biblical scholars do when they study old handwritten copies of Scripture. The New Testament is preserved for us in more manuscript copies than any other work of ancient literature. Some of those manuscripts are complete copies of the New Testament. Others are just parts or fragments. Scholars have access to more than 5,800 Greek manuscripts, more than 10,000 Latin manuscripts, more than 9,300 manuscripts in other ancient languages, including Syriac and Slavic and Gothic and Ethiopic and Coptic and Armenian, more than 25,000 handwritten copies of parts of the Old uh, of the New Testament. 
It's an amazing number of manuscripts because you have to compare that with the runner-up bestseller, which was Homer's Iliad, and we have about 2,000 copies of those. What's important to understand is that these handwritten manuscripts are not all identical. There are slight variations among manuscripts. So when modern Bible translators try to make the ancient Greek Gospel of John speak modern English, they first compare the various ancient copies that they know about and decide which ones are the best. The work of a biblical text scholar is a combination of scientific sleuthing and literary listening. The goal is to get a reading as close as possible to what the original authors wrote. And what we find in the case of the Gospel of John is that the story of the woman caught in adultery does not appear in the oldest manuscripts. And when it does appear, it actually shows up in four different places. The most common place is where we have it in our translation, following John 7.52. But it also appears in other manuscripts following John 7.36 and following John 21.25. And strangely, it even shows up in the Gospel of Luke, following chapter 21, verse 38. So we have a story that doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, but does appear in many later manuscripts, but in four different places. What do we conclude? First, it's fair to say that this story was not written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. Not only is there the problem of it appearing, not appearing in the earliest manuscripts, but also the style and the vocabulary of this passage does not match the rest of the fourth gospel. But secondly, it is clear that this story was well known in the early church and the inclusion of this story in scripture was important to the early church fathers. Here's what Bruce Metzger, the great New Testament scholar, writes about this passage. Quote, The account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western church and which was subsequently incorporated into various manuscripts at various places, end quote. What that means is that this story of Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery is true and was well known throughout the early church, even though it might not have been included in the original Gospel of John. Side issue number two. What is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian? Which, if any, of the laws that were given at Mount Sinai still apply to us Christians today? In thinking about the law of Moses, a code of law that contains 613 separate commands, the church, at least since the time of Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, has distinguished three parts of the law. The first part of the law is the ceremonial law. Much of the Mosaic law concerns worship in the temple, how sacrifices are conducted, ways you need to be ritually clean to participate in worship. This also includes the dietary laws, eating kosher food. 
If someone violates a ceremonial law, they were required to offer certain sacrifices or perform certain washings or wait a certain period of time. The violation of a ceremonial law was made right by ceremonial means, not by penalties or punishments of any kind. Christians do not observe the ceremonial part of the law of Moses. First, because there no longer is a temple. And second, because in a special revelation to Peter, the kosher laws are overturned by Christ regarding animals that formerly were prohibited under the ceremonial law. A voice from heaven says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. So the ceremonial part of the law of Moses is laid by the wayside. A second portion of the law of Moses is the civil law. Civil law concerns property and rights in its many forms. Civil law covers all kinds of things like divorce and inheritance and land ownership and borrowing and debt and what we now call tort law, the kinds of lawsuits you get into when one car crashes into another car. When someone violates a civil law, there can be penalties and punishments required to make things right. Fines, imprisonment, and even execution are all part of this civil law. During the time of the Israelite monarchy, in those days when King David and his successors ruled Judah and Israel, the law of Moses was the civil law of the kingdom. It was the law that was used in courts. But when that kingdom disappeared, those laws ceased to be in effect. Today, you and I live under the laws of Pennsylvania and of the United States. We do not live under the laws of the kingdom of Israel. So the ceremonial law is no longer needed after the temple is gone, and the civil law is replaced by the civil law of various countries. And that leaves the moral law, which Francis Turretin, one of Calvin's successors in Geneva, described as, quote, treating of morals or of perpetual duties toward God and our neighbors, end quote. Of the three parts of the law of Moses, ceremonial, civil, and moral, only the moral remains in force for the church. The moral law includes commands like do not covet and honor your father and mother and love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Violations of the moral law we call sins and they are made right by God himself. To resolve sin problems, there are no ceremonies to be performed in the sanctuary. There are no fines to be paid in a court. There is, however, a reckoning that happens between the sinner and God. And that reckoning is offered graciously at the cross and is received by faith. So let's go back to the woman in our story from the Gospel of John. The Ten Commandments are clearly part of the moral law, as are the two great commandments to love God and to love your neighbor. And the Ten Commandments prohibit adultery. Adultery is a moral issue because it violates our duties to God and our duties to our neighbors. But adultery is also a civil issue because it involves property 
and because it creates suffering in families and in communities. And in the civil law, there is prescribed punishments for adultery, stoning by death. When the scribes and Pharisees bring the woman to Jesus, they want a judgment in civil law. That's where the penalties are. The seventh commandment, which is part of the moral law, contains no threatened punishment. It just says, thou shalt not commit adultery. It is the civil law, which we read earlier this morning from Deuteronomy 22 and Deuteronomy 17, that imposes the penalty, and that penalty is death by stoning. So the woman caught in adultery has violated both the moral law and the civil law. She's brought to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees to see what he would do. And Jesus affirms the moral law. He tells the woman to stop sinning. But he frees her from the penalty of the civil law. The penalties that the Pharisees are so keen to see enacted. For Christians, the moral law continues to have force... Even while we lay aside the penalties of the civil law. We see an example of this in Hebrews 14, 3. This is in the New Testament where we read, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We affirm that sexual purity is important to God. And that sex outside of marriage violates God's plan for us. We uphold the moral law, but we lay aside the civil penalties of the law and we do not stone adulterers. While the sin and the law catches and demands a penalty, the grace of God and the gospel sets us free to live lives of holiness. The story of the woman caught in adultery is summed up In Jesus' final statement to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. We all know John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But sometimes we forget the verse that follows. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is just not in the condemning business. He's not here to catch sinners. He's here to set them free. Jesus is in the saving business. And what he saves us from is the consequence of sin and the slavery to sin. He came to release us from the power of sin so that we might have lives that are holy. Sin is our basic problem. And Jesus is God's solution to that problem. With sin comes separation and judgment and condemnation and unfreedom. And so God sends Jesus to release us from all of that stuff by providing a solution to our sin problem. How does God do that? Well, He doesn't do it by throwing out His eternal law. He doesn't do it by saying, oh, never mind, I was just kidding about that stuff. The law of God reflects the mind of God, and the mind of God is rooted in the nature of God, which does not change. God does not throw out his moral law. Rather, he provides the satisfaction for our violations of the law. On the cross, the penalty of our sin is paid by God's own Son. While we were once caught by sin and the law, we have now been set free. 
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God simultaneously upholds the law and his love. God's law stands along with its eternal consequences. And God's love stands because he himself bears those punishments on the cross. So Jesus says to this woman, I do not condemn you. And he doesn't. That's not why he came to earth. The scribes and the Pharisees want to condemn her. Jesus does not condemn the woman under the civil law, though she is clearly guilty, but he also does not abandon the moral law. He tells her, go and from now on sin no more. While she was caught in sin before, Jesus releases her to live a new life, a holy life. The gospel holds together two seemingly contrary ideas. That God is perfectly holy and demands justice. And that God is loving and redeems sinners from their sins. The gospel says both. And there are two errors, two common errors with regard to the gospel. The first error is what we call legalism. That's the belief that we can be in God's good graces by scrupulously keeping the law. Anyone who has a high opinion of their own moral perfections might be guilty of legalism. Anyone who is overly concerned about the sins of other people might be guilty of legalism. It's often conservative Christians who suffer from legalism. And legalism misses the mark. Legalism falls below the standard of the gospel because it fails to honestly recognize our inability to keep God's law. If we're okay with God only because of our good behavior, then we are all doomed. So legalism is no good. And it can only lead to despair because it leaves us caught in the demands of the law. It leaves us caught by the power of sin. Having said that, the opposite of legalism is also no good. We call that position antinomianism. That's just a fancy word meaning anti-lawism. Antinomians act as if God doesn't take his law seriously or that God's law no longer stands or that what the Bible says about God's law is no longer true. It's often liberal Christians who suffer from antinomianism. I had a pastor friend of mine say to me during the debate in our former denomination about sexual ethics that he thought Almighty God surely didn't care about our sex lives. That God had bigger things to be worrying about and that he didn't really care what we do. That is an antinomian position. And it is false and it is dangerous because it doesn't take seriously what Scripture says, because it ignores the moral law, because it pretends that God is morally indifferent, because it leaves people trapped and caught in patterns of sin that they think that God won't notice. The gospel is neither legalistic nor antinomian. The gospel is neither conservative nor liberal. The gospel says sin is serious business. And the consequence of sin is death and abandonment by God. And the gospel says that God loves us so much that he's willing to bear those consequences in his own body on the cross. Sin and the law catch us. And they make us slaves. But grace and the gospel release us to live lives of holiness. So here's the gospel. You and I have a problem. 
And that problem is called sin. All of us have a shabby record. And the consequence of that sin is serious. Death and abandonment by God. By nature, we are caught in sin. But God, in love, sent His Son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for that sin. In the cross, God upheld His righteousness. He paid the penalty that we earned. And He demonstrated His bottomless love for us. By faith in Christ, our sins are removed as far as east is from the west. And the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. And we are set free to live new lives, holy lives. God's law is upheld and God's love wins. What sin and the law captures, God's love and grace releases. The gospel is richly and simply revealed in Jesus' answer to this woman caught in adultery. A woman as guilty as the rest of us in this room. Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you because I came to save you. I have come to release you. And Jesus says to her, go and from now on sin no more because he knows that forgiveness breaks the mold, the hold that sin has on our lives. He knows that forgiveness releases us so that we can be free. My charge to you this morning is that you lay hold of the riches of God's justice, that you lay hold of the riches of God's mercy by placing your faith in Jesus Christ who died on a cross for the sins of the world. Lay hold of forgiveness. Lay hold of freedom in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for these words of Scripture that you have caused to be preserved for us miraculously through the ages. We thank you for this story of Jesus and this little vignette of how Jesus dealt with people who were trapped by sin. Lord, we pray that we would be set free. We pray that your amazing grace would be real in our hearts and in our minds, that we would realize what it is that you've done for us and that we would be set free. Lord, I pray that we would not be victims or slaves to sin. I pray that we would not be victims or slaves to lawlessness. But I pray that we would cling to your moral law as the standard of our lives, that we would cling to your sacrifice on the cross as the payment of our sins. In you alone is our hope, and you alone is our future. We pray that you would claim us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 8.1 